We turn to Psalm 78. Psalm 78. And sending this information to the bulletin clerk, I hit the wrong number. Not Psalm 75. Psalm 78. Read two sections from the psalm at the beginning and the conclusion. Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, showing to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he hath done. For he established a testimony in Jacob, appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers, that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, even the children which should be born, who should arise and declare them to their children, that they might set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and might not be as their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that set not their heart aright, and whose spirit was not steadfast with God. Now we turn to verse 57. But turned back and dealt unfaithfully like their fathers, they were turned aside like a deceitful bull, for they provoked him to anger with their high places and moved him to jealousy with their graven images. When God heard this, he was wroth and greatly abhorred Israel, so that he forsook the tabernacle of Shiloh, the tent which he placed among men, and delivered his strength unto captivity and his glory into the enemy's hand. He gave his people over also unto the sword and was wroth with his inheritance. The fire consumed their young men, their maidens were not given to marriage. Their priests fell by the sword and their widows made no lamentation. Then the Lord awaked as one out of a sleep and like a mighty man that shouted by reason of wine and he smote his enemies in the hinder part, he put them to a perpetual reproach. Moreover, he refused the tabernacle of Joseph, and chose not the tribe of Ephraim. Joseph, of course, is represented by Ephraim, where the tabernacle once was in Shiloh, but it's moved. But chose the tribe of Judah, the Mount Zion, which he loved. And he built a sanctuary like high palaces, like the earth which he had established forever. He chose David, also his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds, from following the ewes, great with young, he brought him to feed Jacob his people and Israel his inheritance. So he fed them according to the integrity of his heart, and guided them by the skillfulness of his hands. Or the reading of the passage. I want to point out as the psalm concludes, there's reference to David, and you know who he represents for shadows. David was taken from the sheepfold, but he did not cease to be a shepherd, a shepherd king. Now he becomes the shepherd king of the flock of God's people. And as we read, 
verse 5, he established a testimony in Jacob, appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, even the children which should be born, who should arise and declare them to their children. On the basis of such passages and in accordance with the whole of God's word, we are instructed in Lord's Day 39, which is an explanation of the fifth commandment, which reads, Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Deuteronomy adds, and it shall go well with thee in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Explanation of Lord's Day 39, question and answer 104, what doth God require in the fifth commandment? That I show all honor, love, and fidelity to my father and mother and all in authority over me and submit myself to their good instruction and correction with due obedience and also patiently bear with their weaknesses and infirmities since it pleases God to govern us by their hand. That the fifth commandment is the first commandment of the second table of the law is significant. It flows, of course, out of the first table of the law. The first table of the law has at its principle, thou shalt love the Lord thy God, and gives four commandments how that is to come to expression. And then you come to the second table of the law, and that table continues to set forth how a love for God comes to expression. And the love for God that comes is to come to expression is to love thy neighbor as thyself. That's the principle, of course, of the second table of the law. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Which means you and I are to put others before ourselves. That's at the heart of love. And putting others before ourselves is not our nature, and it's not the nature of our children. If we put others before ourselves in love, and our children put others before themselves in love, that is something that has to be taught them as it was taught us. That our children are regenerated 
does not mean they automatically will love their neighbor as themselves and put others before themselves. Which is not to say that the matter of regeneration is insignificant or unimportant. It is still basic. It's exactly because they are regenerated that they can be taught to put others before themselves and to show, so show obedience to God himself. And if they fail to love their brothers and their sisters and learn to put others before themselves, they sin. But if they fail to do that because we have, we have failed to teach them that, then we have sinned. Understand, if one is going to love his neighbor as himself and put others before himself, one must be taught. Our children must be taught. The question is, who is to teach them? You and I are to teach them how to love their neighbors as yourself. But if you and I are to teach others how to love their neighbors as, as themselves, we better know what it is to love our neighbors as ourselves. Beginning men, with your closest neighbor, you know who she is, right? Do you know what it means to love her? On a family visitation question, the question is not whether you love your wife, well, maybe not as much as I should. Not the question. Or you can say yes. The question is, can you tell us what it means to love your wife? Can you tell your children what it means to love their mother as your wife? And the same for the women. You're going to teach your children to love their neighbor as herself. Do you know what it means to love your husband? Could you explain that to us? And how do you live that way as well? Because instruction, as you and I well know, is not simply a matter of words, is it? We are to be as dominies. We are to practice what we preach. It's easy to preach, especially about godliness. The difficulty is not preaching godliness. The difficulty is living godliness. And for that you need regeneration. But you also need the instruction of God's word as it's found in God's law. And when it comes to this matter of loving the neighbor as itself, the first commandment of that section of the law is to honor father and mother. And then we, as fathers and mothers, are to teach our children what the law is and what is required of them, what it means to honor others who are in authority what it means not to be guilty of murder, 
especially with the tongue. What it means to be sexually chaste, what it means not to steal and to cheat, what it means not to lie, but to be honest, and what's required of them not even to covet what others may have. That is what falls upon us as parents, and it's from that perspective that I want to approach this Lord's Day, this time, with you. If you read the question and answer, the answer of the catechism, it addresses the children completely. Well, it makes their, it makes this the confession of the, of the child and even of the believer that I show all honor, love, and fidelity. But this is something that must be taught. And from that point of view, as we read in Psalm 78, this is our calling. And it's from that perspective then, especially that I want to approach this Lord's Day with its explanation that we are to teach our children to honor authority. And I suppose I could have word, added the word our, teaching our children to honor our authority. But we would do that in the interest of teaching children to honor all those who have authority over them. First of all, having a covenantal basis, and then a little bit of detail what we are to require of them according to the instruction of the, of the catechism, and that this instruction by means of authority and correction is to be tempered with love. So teaching our children to honor authority and those in authority. What this commandment makes plain is that the teaching of one to love his neighbor as himself is to begin at a tender age. It does not wait until one perhaps is old enough to make confession of faith. And now that you've made confession of faith, now are, you are to begin to live according to God's word and law and to love others and to do good to them. It's evident from this commandment that this loving of the neighbor of as self is to begin in childhood. And it is to begin to express itself particularly in the setting of a family towards one's own siblings if one has siblings, brothers and sisters, and learning to put them first. Can you believe it, children? Put your brothers and sisters first. But also to submit into the instruction and requirements of their parents. That's to begin at a 
tender age. And as we have already said, that if that instruction is not given to the children, then, of course, we have sinned. We ourselves have failed as parents. It is something that we must, it's the weight of the law, not only for our children, but it's the weight of, our law, of the law for ourselves, you see. It's a responsibility, and it is a calling. But we must also be teaching them their responsibility and their calling. And why it is that the keeping of the law and to love their neighbor as their self is so important is because not simply we as parents require that of them, though we do, but we do that in God's name. And it's the Lord God in the end that requires this of them. And when they fail to do that, they not only displease us, but they displease the Lord God. Which means, of course, that we better have taught them who the Lord God is and why it's so serious to displease the Lord God. Who is the Lord God? That's part of our instruction. All embedded in the first table of the law, of course. The one who made the heavens and the earth, who is the true God. And so in pleasing us, you must and you are pleasing him. But before we get into elaborating on that and all that works itself out, I want to point out that this commandment is covenantal. The covenant of God with us is, if you will, built into the fabric of the commandment itself, but it's also, of course, part of the very prologue to the Ten Commandments. I remind you of how the Ten Commandments begins. I am the Lord thy God who hath brought thee out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. That's deliverance, of course, from the slavery of Egypt. And as you well know, Egypt was a picture of a spiritual bondage. He didn't simply deliver his Israel from material, physical bondage, though he did deliver them from such, but it represented him setting his people free, his people free, from the bondage to Satan and sin and death and the lie. He set his people free. But remember, beloved, he didn't simply set the adults free. He set the children free, even those who were carried in their mother's arms. That's, of course, the meaning of the prologue as well. It's the Lord God who addresses our children and who says to them, I am the Lord thy God, and I have saved you, and I have set you free, and I have set you free for the purpose of serving me, being called by my name, but showing also that you are my children, not only the children of your parents, but my children as well. And, of course, as we stated, the covenant of God with his people, his flock, is woven into the very commandment itself because there is a 
promise that's attached, attached to the commandment, which has to do with the inheritance of the promised land. And that promise, as you well know, goes back to Father Abraham, who was to be given the land in due time. As God said to him, I am thy God, Abraham, but I am the, also the God of thee and thy seed after thee, and thy seed after thee also will receive the good land. This is to be their inheritance. Abraham, of course, himself never as such received that land because that in the end was not the true land. It was simply, the Canaan was simply a picture of the, of the ultimate spiritual land. So what God was promising Abraham was not simply the land of Canaan as such, but what the land of Canaan represented in the end, which is, of course, the kingdom of heaven itself. This is your inheritance, Abraham, and you're going to receive it in your generations. I will be the God of thee and thy seed after thee, and they shall be my people as well. So a gathering of his people from the line of generation clearly pertain to the Old Testament age as they are saved in generations. And you can go to the genealogy of Luke chapter 3 that reaches from Adam to Mary, and that's one long line of those who were spiritually alive. In Matthew's generation, Matthew's genealogy in one you have genealogy of Joseph, but that's a broken generation. Some king spiritual, some very unspiritual. Not Mary's line. That went from Adam and Eve all the way to the Virgin Mary. Generation saved, the God of the covenant. Clearly how he worked in the Old Testament age. The question is, of course, is that how he still works in the New Testament age? And as you well know, there are those who deny that that's how God works in the New Testament age with believers and their seed and assures believers that he will gather his church, his own people, in the line of generations. They're called the, the Baptist. And you may discuss these matters with the Baptists, and I have discussed these matters with Baptists. Even, I'm going to call them good brothers, what I call, what, who name themselves Reformed Baptists. It's a misnomer because Reformed, by definition, has to do with the covenant. So we'll call them Sovereign Grace Baptists. You can find such. They talk about election. They talk about limited atonement. They talk about preservation of the, of the saints, the five points of Calvinism, and preach them. But they will not baptize their children because they say in the New Testament, God does not simply promise he's going to gather his people in the line of generations, but he gathers individuals, sometimes his children as well, but there is no promise that applies to such. Well, they are sadly, and in some ways even grievously, mistaken. And that can be pointed out to them, of course, because the fifth commandment, which is obviously covenantal in its, its, its declaration and its formulation, is quoted, as you know, in the New Testament, and it's brought home by the Apostle Paul to the church of Ephesus, which letter was to be distributed to all the churches of the early New Testament and read by us today as the church of Christ. Children, 
Ephesians chapter 6, Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And then it quotes the fifth commandment, Honor thy father and thy mother, which is the first commandment with promise. Let it may go well with thee, and thou mayest live long in the earth. That the apostle should address children in his epistle, his New Testament letter, reveals something, is evidence of something. What? That they have the Holy Spirit. That's what? That they can receive these words and lay them to heart and obey them for the Lord's sake. For this is right. So when I have discussed these matters with certain Baptists, I'll call them brothers even, my great question is not concerning baptism, whether you baptize or not. That's almost a secondary issue. My question to them has always been, how do you view your children, the little ones that come from the womb? Little vipers or lambs? Are they lambs or are they vipers? In other words, not saved as yet, needing to be regenerated and born again. So you have little children born who have yet to be converted, have yet to be regenerated, have yet to be the Holy Spirit. How do you teach them to behave. You teach them to behave as little Christians, you say, without the Holy Spirit. You teach them to pray to God, and they don't have the Holy Spirit. You teach them to pray for the forgiveness of sins, and they don't have the Holy Spirit. And they call upon God in the name of Jesus to forgive their sins, and to expect the forgiveness of sins, and they don't have the Holy Spirit. Do you see the problem here? You are inconsistent in the instruction of your children. Happily inconsistent, but inconsistent for all that. The reason the love that we can teach our children to keep God's commandments and to love the neighbor as themselves, beginning even with their siblings, is because they have the Holy Spirit. They are born again. And, by the way, who is to deny the sign and seal of the Holy Spirit to those who already have the Holy Spirit. Be that as it may, this whole matter of the instruction of our children in the New Testament arises out of God's covenantal promise to us and our children, and that he even says to believers of the New Testament, and I will gather my own in generations from your children, every last one of your children, not necessarily, but still, and generations from your children. And now you are to teach them the meaning of the covenant. What beloved belongs at the heart of God's covenant for our covenant children? The heart of God's covenant as you and I well know, is 
friendship. God's friendship with his people is where it begins, of course. It has to do with a matter of sovereign grace. And when we speak of sovereign grace, we are speaking not only of, not only of being brought into God's covenant and given spiritual life contrary to what we deserve, though it certainly is contrary to what we deserve. It is simply according to the good will of God that no man deserves, and he determines himself in his good will who shall be numbered where those who are the seed of Abraham to whom belong the promises of the everlasting inheritance, and that it should be us and our children is a matter of marvelous and wonderful grace beyond telling. But the grace of God does not simply promise something to those who are unworthy. The grace of God is also an irresistible power that transforms, something that we as Protestant Reform must lay hold upon more and more, I'm convinced. We are new creatures. And because we are new creatures, the word can come from us, come from the pulpit, and must come from the pulpit, and we are called to respond as God requires of us. And if we refuse, we are guilty of sin and displeasure of this sovereign God. It's a, light, it's a grace that transforms, because it's really the Holy Spirit who graciously works and brings forth a new creature and a new heart. The grace of the covenant. But now you see, beloved, what our children must be taught is what friendship is all about. What is it to live as a friend of others? God is our friend. And God as our friend, beloved, seeks our well-being. I will even say this. God in his love has put us before himself from the point of view of his own son. Our needs. His son needed to become the son of man and die on a cross, not for himself and his own sake, but for our sake. And this he did according to our Father's love, our sovereign, saving God's love. God putting our need before the, his own Son, if you will, and thereby we are saved. He befriended us in the deepest way that is imaginable. And now, we must teach our children what it means to befriend others as the seed of the covenant. Putting others before self. And, of course, seeking their well-being. Where are they to learn this? As to do, beloved, with the family. We read this in Psalm 68, verse 5. 
hath put the solitary, he hath put the solitary in, I'm sorry, 65 verse 8. He has put the solitary in families. That's an interesting passage. Put the solitary in families. That solitary, beloved, has to do with individuals. I correct myself once more. Psalm 68, verse 6. Psalm 68, verse 6. He hath set the solitary in families. That's an individual, you see. But in families. He saves individuals. He saves us as members of the body of Christ in our diversity, male and female, and with all kinds of personalities and characters and gifts and all the rest, but he puts those individuals that he saves in families, and in the families, he saves them. He uses that for the salvation of that individual commonly. He can save others, of course, by the work of missions and calls them out of their own families, and they are called then to believe, and if they marry, to begin their own families, but commonly saves individuals in the covenant in these families. And it's in the families that they are to be taught, you see, the truths of God's word and what is required of them. This falls then upon the head of the family and the helpmeet as well, who are the parents in the family. They are to teach those children given to them and to be used in the development of their understanding of their salvation and of their calling as the friends of God and how they are to live as the friends of God, which is not simply a love for God, but a love also for their neighbor and especially for those who are loved by God. This is the calling beloved of the family and of the parents of the family. Our calling. This is not the calling of the state. I will even say this from a certain point of view, it's not even the calling of the school. The school is to be involved. But the burden of teaching our children what it means to befriend others is not to be left to the school. We'll turn them over to the schools and the schools will teach them how they are to befriend others, their fellow classmates. The primary calling lays upon us as parents. We teach them what it means to love others and to honor others who are in authority. The school may assist us in that, and if you have a good Christian school, it does assist us in that, but it lays upon the parents to teach the children what it means to love their neighbor and to submit to the authority of others, beginning with our own authority. We live in a dangerous age, beloved. There are those who want others to do the instruction of their children. We'll leave that to the others. It's not the calling, beloved, of 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 a daycare center or something, and we turn them over to the, the daycare center, and we go off and do our, our work and so on, and come back and collect them at supper time, and the major part of their life that day is under 
someone who has been hired, if, if you will, to take care of who knows how many children. It's our responsibility, starting with us primarily, to tend to those whom God has given to us as his lambs with the newness of their life. And we live, as I have said, in an increasingly dangerous age, in the age in which a state has determined that it really would like to take over the instruction of our children, and that ultimately, really, the children that the citizens of this good land bring forth belong to the state. And we turn them over to the state, and they do the instruction according to their principles and their perspective. And they don't even need the permission of the parents to teach them what they want to teach them. That's how they come out of universities with their degrees in teaching today. You will teach them this, that, and the other thing. And it doesn't have to do with the parental permission. It's a, a great battle today, isn't it, in the state-run schools. It's a fascism, beloved. It's a development of fascism and socialism going right back to Germany of old. Let me call it by another name. But your children belong to the state. We will take care of them and you and I will not fill their heads with what is right and wrong according to the word of God. And we must fight that till the very end. And if it comes down to it, beloved, and these laws actually finally are put in place, which invariably they will ultimately down the road, then we must there obey God rather than men and teach our children that in this instance we obey God rather than men and refuse to submit to the authority of this anti-Christian state. Those days come. Until those days come, we have a calling to do all that we can to teach our children God's word, that they are male and female, and they are to behave as male and female, and not imagine that they can change that according to their own women preference, and that this lifestyle, the gay lifestyle and so on, is forbidden by God, and to be condemned, and so on and so forth. We teach them to govern their lives according to God's word. The family does that as parents. We do that. That's our responsibility. And so, beloved, our covenantal ob obligation. And we want to teach them, of course, that they submit to all those in authority, our authority, but, their author but the authority of others as well Except, of course, if they should be instructed to transgress God's law. So the calling falls upon us that they may learn what it means to befriend others as they are the seed of the covenant. How does this work itself out? The catechism, beloved, lays it out rather nicely. Now it does that, as I said, from a point of view of a personal confession. It does that from the point of view of someone who has been taught the meaning of God's law, beginning with the fifth commandment, that I show all honor, love, and fidelity to my father and my mother and all 
in authority over me. That was something that this one who wrote the catechism had been taught, and so accordingly he could write what he had been taught, if you will. We want to view it, as I have said, from the point of view of Moses in Deuteronomy 6 when he says, this is the law of God, and now you who are the parents are to teach these words to your children, what it means to honor those in authority. So it's laid out here in the catechism that I show all honor, love, and fidelity to father and mother and all in authority over me and to submit to their instruction and correction with due obedience. What's striking about the, catech about the, about the commandment, beloved, is that it says honor. Honor father and mother. It does not say love father and mother. Not because one is not to love father and mother, in the second table of the law. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. That includes father and mother. And the catechism itself says honor, love, and fidelity. But that's not the word that's used in the fifth commandment. The word that's used is honor. Why honor? Because honor is the evidence of true love. Anyone can say, I love someone else. I can say I love God. Many do say I love God. Now read 1 John chapter 4. Oh, I love God, I love God, I love God. But I have nothing good to say about my neighbor and my fellow believer and my fellow church member. I can run them down left and right. And you claim to love God, huh? Maybe you better rethink that, God says. If you can't speak well of your fellow church member, don't talk about loving me, whom you can't see, while you run down someone whom you can see. It's even easy to say, love, love, love. Where's the evidence of that love? For a child, too, oh, I love my parents. And then doesn't listen to what his parents say. That's not love. You are to honor. And if you honor your father and your mother, then indeed you show true love. So, the word here is to honor father and mother, to honor one's parents. And that beloved has to be taught them at a tender age, what it means to honor father and mother. The reason they have to be taught that at a tender age is because Disobedience shows itself at a tender age, doesn't it, in your children? I know it does. They're related to you. They have your spiritual DNA, or one might say perhaps the unspiritual part of your DNA in your human nature, just as my children have my unspiritual DNA as well as the spirit of Christ in them and they're going to tend towards disobedience and it's going to show itself and that has to be dealt with so that they learn to honor father and mother and be taught at a tender age beginning as they develop and begin to assert their own will and children begin to assert their own will at a very tender age, as you and I well 
No. And that will, beloved, has to be bent to conform to our will. As our will, by the grace of God, is according to God's will. So it's our will imposed upon them as we ourselves are governed by God's will. And that, of course, has to do with discipline, if need be, what the Catechism calls here correction. Correction applied in love so that they not only not be displeasing to us, but they not be displeasing to God in the assertion of their own will to put themselves first rather than to think of others as they and we ought. There is a certain fellow whose name is a Dr. Palmer, Dr. Benjamin Palmer, and he had some wisdom. He was a Presbyterian and of the 1800s, and he wrote concerning the raising of, of children and teaching them what, how, how to teach them to honor father and mother. And he stated that he found it rather comical and sad when it's evident that two grown-up persons cannot manage one poor little weakling whose only resource is to cry and to pout and to shout, end of quote. It would be funny, he said, if it weren't so sad. One little 25-pound child controlling two grown-up people just by wailing and shouting and persisting in something, and the parents finally begin to cater to that little one at the age of 12 months. Well, if in child rearing we are catering to a child and his whims and his will at the age of 12 months, what do you think is going to be happening when he's 12 years of age and his will has, has developed? And now try to deal with that. The, the Dr. Palmer was indicating it's almost too late to begin then. You have to begin at a rather tender age. And he points out, I'm going to quote again, the great fallacy of much child-rearing these days is to assume that one, a child must understand in order to obey, and therefore one must wait for this understanding to develop before obedience is to be expected and then exercised. And to that the doctor of theology and of child-rearing said, Nonsense. One does not wait until the understanding has developed so that you have reason with him. And once you can explain to that child why he must obey, now you can expect obedience. He points out later that uh, the will and the assertion of the will is displayed long before the child has proper judgment of what's right and wrong. And so he says that will, when it shows itself, in a self-serving way, must be met at the pass, must be met as it shows itself and addressed by these parents. And one must be, that child must be taught, no, that is not my will 
for you. Your will must conform to our will here. You will be considerate and thoughtful of others. This household does not revolve about you and your whims and your wants. You are not Lord and King here. We, from the point, from a certain point of view, rule here, but we rule in the name of the one who is the Lord God, and we rule in our wisdom according to our judgment, and you will obey, and you will honor what we say, or here are the consequences that correction. And so, beloved, falls to parents to teach their children in accordance with God's word what is required of them. And in so doing, we teach them to honor ourselves as we bring the rule of correction to bear as well. But we teach them concerning all authority, not only our, all, our own, but all those in authority. And I could talk about those who are in government and so on, but also those who are especially teachers and office bearers, and we must teach them that you are to honor what they say and to submit to what they say. And they may say, why? Why should we submit to what you say and why should we submit, submit to what they say? And the simple answer is because this is right at first. It's because of what we require of you and because of where they have been placed by God's own authority as one who is to govern your life. Whether you understand it or not is not the issue. It is who has authority and we have it from God himself as do your teachers and your office bearers also. And if they say, if you say, must we obey them in all things? My answer is yes, you must obey them in all things. And a child may raise his hand and may say, but what if they say to us we are to do something contrary to God's word? My answer to that is also, as often, is always, I said to obey your parents. And your parents and your teachers are not going to require of you anything that's sinful, are they? If you were in a public school, that might be so. But not your teachers. Them you are to obey in all things. This is right. And I just remind ourselves, beloved, we are going to teach them to obey others in authority. We ourselves honor others in authority. We ourselves better be honoring those in authority and not speaking disparagingly of them. Not only by word you understand we instruct, but by example as well. If we are forever critical and speaking disparaging words, what do you expect of the, of the child? The child is going to follow after and simply imitate us in this matter and the sin of the child becomes our sin as well. And so we instruct our children not only by word but by example. Our instruction, beloved, as we use our authority is one that must be tempered by love. We have authority, and our authority is indeed to be imposed upon them. We are to teach them to love, which of course does not 
and that means to seek another's well-being. doesn't mean you're always happy with someone else, not really pleased with someone else. Money may be displeased and even angry with someone else and still love that someone else. We may be displeased with our children beloved and angry with them, but we still love them. And we must teach our children as well that they are to love others, whether they're happy with them or displeased or displeased with them or not. We bring this to bear upon them as we bring our authority because we must not rule them as tyrants, but we must show them, beloved, that we love them and we befriend them. We have time for them. We teach them to honor us not only by the imposition of our authority, but are taking time for them, showing that we have an interest in their life and their well-being, and speak encouraging words as well. The importance of this was brought home to me one time in a rather forceful way. A woman who was a widow. Her husband had died recently. Her children, by and large, were out of the home. Sons and daughters visit her after the funeral. And in time, he talked about the visitation and those who came to the visitation. This man was a businessman, the salesman of equipment, had many clients. And she remarked on those clients that came through and the words they spoke concerning her husband. And she shook her head in amazement. She said, because the man they were describing was not a man that myself and my children were acquainted with. And their condolences, and I use that word purposely because it was condolences and not Christian sympathy, they were clients from the world, spoke glowingly of his character, of his charm, of his consideration, of his willingness to inconvenience himself for their sake in the interest of business. They couldn't say enough good work, things about how friendly and outgoing and charming he was. But she said when he came home, all we knew was a man who was short and sharp and angry and had very little time for the children, showed a little interest in their lives, and it seemed that they never measured with his clients in the business world, could inconvenience himself, and was thoughtful and considerate. When it came to his own children, short and angry, and he ruled with authority, you will do it my way, and they did out of fear for their father and his authority. This, you understand, was a member of the church. He knew all about the covenant. He could define the covenant for you. He could argue for the unconditional covenant. I knew the man. He was well-schooled in theology. He could talk to Arminians and conditional covenant people and out debate them six days of the week and twice on Sunday. But when it came to functioning as a covenantal father, that was another matter. He had no interest, little interest, little time, and spoke disparagingly and not encouragingly. 
and it bore, I'm here to tell you, bitter fruit. Love, they love. Love, so important when it comes to us as parents exercising our God-given authority in the way of consideration and thoughtfulness and befriending our children with respect to their own lives and their own development, and that's apparent to them. That's what this law requires, not only of our children, beloved, to walk in love and honor, but requires of us. And we are to pattern ourselves, don't you see, after our heavenly Father's love, who has full authority in our lives and exercises that authority. He knows our weaknesses, he knows our frailties, and he deals with us in a forbearing love, correcting us as we need to be corrected, rebuking us, but always seeking our well-being and always assuring us that he is our Father who still loves us in spite of our weaknesses and sins and showed that beloved in the gift of his Son, that great shepherd of the sheep. Our Heavenly Father is our pattern. His fatherly love and his friendship with us. And our children must learn that as well. That God is your God. He is your friend. And when you obey your parents, you not only please them, but you please him. And when you please him, there is no greater honor in all of life. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, bring thy word to bear upon our hearts. Stir us up by thy word the operations of thy spirit. Teach us what it means to honor thee in thy word and to live accordingly and then to instruct our children and to teach them by word and example. Forgive us, Father. Forgive us when we fail and stir us up unto the right paths. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.